We're turning tonight for our Bible reading to the book, the prophecy of Zechariah, of, of sorry, Zephaniah. We're reading from Zephaniah, and we're reading from the third chapter. Zephaniah, the third chapter. We'll commence to read at the verse 14, the third chapter, Zephaniah. We read at the first, verse 14. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord hath taken away thy judgments. He hath cast out thine enemy, the king of Israel. Even the Lord is in the midst of thee. Thou shalt not see evil any more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear thou not. And to Zion, let not thine hands be slack. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save he will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will sing over thee with singing. I will gather them that are sorrowful for the solemn assembly who are of thee to whom the reproach of it was a burden. Behold, at that time I will undo all that afflict thee and I will save her, her that halteth and gather her that hath driven out, and I will get them praise and fame in every land where they have been put to shame. At that time will I bring you again, even in the time that I gather you, for I will make you a name and a praise among all people of the earth when I turn back your captivity before your eyes saith the Lord. Amen. We look to the Lord again in a wee word of prayer. Eternal God and Heavenly Father, come before thee again. Thy word is opened before us. Thank thee, Lord, for the hymn of praise. We praise thee, Lord, tonight that thou art a God of love. We thank thee, Lord, for that love of God that was manifest in Calvary, manifest in the eternal Son, who there as the sacrifice, that substitutionary sacrifice, bore our sin in his own body on and to the three. Praise thee, Lord, tonight for every blessing that is ours in Christ, for every blessing that is ours in the gospel of Christ. <clears throat> we pray, O God, that here now, as we draw before thee, and as we turn to thy word, that thou would have us to see afresh the blessings that are ours in and through the Savior. Pray, Lord, tonight that help will be given to the preacher of thy word. Thou knowest the need of the preacher. We Pray, O God, that Thou would meet that need tonight for Thine own glory's sake. <clears throat> Pray, O God, that Thou would meet tonight that need tonight for the blessing, the edifying of Thy people, that we will be aware that Thou art with us, 
Help us, O Lord, show us those things that thou would have us to meditate upon. Give us of thy blessing, pray, Lord, to this end, that thou would give to me that fresh anointing, that I might know the power of God in the place of preaching. <clears throat> pray, O God, that tonight thou would take from me everything, Lord, that would be a distraction. Take every distracting thought away. <clears throat> I pray, O God, that here tonight thou would give that plainness of speaking that all will be able to understand what the Lord has to say to us. Answer prayer to this end. For we ask it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Our text is the first 17. That third chapter of Sephaniah, the first 17. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save, he will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. This short book of Sephaniah has, of course, an immediate application to Israel with the greatest part of the book dealing with God's righteous judgments bearing upon Israel because of their sin and because of their rebellion against God. But in these closing verses that we read together, we have the promise of God detailing their restoration and the blessings of God that accompany their restoration. But these verses... These promises have a fuller and a greater application beyond Israel because they include God's blessing upon spiritual Israel, upon the church, as it is referred to there in Galatians 6 and 16. The blessings of God upon his redeemed people, those that he has turned their hearts towards himself, and so that is the way in which we want to look at these verses that we read together tonight. This verse 17 brings us right to the sense of the presence of God with his people. These are the blessings of God. When God works amongst his people and turns his people to himself, these are the blessings that we can expect, that which he has promised here in the first 17, we have the blessing of the presence of the Lord with his people. We read there, the Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee. This is Jehovah uh, that is spoken of here as we have the term used again there in the first 15, where it says, uh, the Lord hath taken away thy judgments. He has cast out thine enemy. The king of Israel, even the Lord, even Jehovah, is in the midst of thee. And so we have that real promise of God with his people. Of course, it reminds us uh, of that promise that was given to us in the name that was given to the Lord Jesus Christ when he was given the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. But it reminds us very especially uh, of the promise that the Lord Jesus Christ gave over there in Matthew 18 and 20, where he said, where the two and three are gathered together in my name, 
There am I in the midst of thee. What a promise that is. That for just a handful of people are gathered together, the Lord is in the midst. Not all congregations are as big as the congregation in Bellamina. Some places have only a handful of God's people meeting together in the place of prayer or in the place of worship, in the place of praise. And how precious is that promise that when we meet together in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have this assurance that the Lord is with us. The Lord is in our midst. And so we hold on to that promise here tonight. Let this promise be a means of blessing. Let it be a promise that we take hold of, that the Lord is in the midst of his people. Again, we find we have not only the the, uh, presence of the Lord, but we have also the, the power of God, because that same verse goes on to say, the Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. So our God is not only with us, but our God is a mighty God. He, has a, he is the God of infinite power. He is mighty. He is mighty to save. And we have that referred to in our text again. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. We have a God who saves. And he is mighty to save. And he saves his people. He saves his people freely. He saves his people fully. He saves his people everlastingly. He saves us. He saves us from our sin. He saves us from Satan. He saves us from hell. He is mighty to save, and he's mighty to defend us, and he's mighty to strengthen us, and he's mighty to comfort us. He is mighty also to defend us. Uh, He is mighty to confound and to destroy his enemies. What a God we have, a God who has infinite power, a God in the midst of us, who has infinite power, who is mighty, our God is able. His power to turn the hearts of the people back to himself. We think back to the days of Elijah. And we think of the terrible state that Israel was in. At the time of Elijah, they had gone after false gods, and yet God, in his mercy and his grace, but by his infinite power, he turned the hearts of the people Turn the hearts of the people to himself. Isn't that what we need again in our day? We think of our nation. We think of the confusion, the sin, the iniquity that abounds. Right across the nation of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, here in our own province, the depth of iniquity and how men and women, the general populace, have turned away from the Lord and are following man-made gods, gods of their own making. We need that God would move again. And our God is the God of infinite power. And so we come to the prayer meeting tonight. We're assured of the presence of God. We're assured uh, of his infinite power, that our God is mighty. But we've also here the pleasure of the Lord amongst his people. And we read that first there again. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. Here's the pleasure of God. When God meets with his people and we meet together and the Lord is in the midst, oh, the pleasure that the eternal, infinite God has in his people meeting together to worship him. The Lord joys 
over his people. And so we're assured of the blessings of God, his presence, his power, his pleasure amongst us, and his pleasure in us and over us. But I want to have this phrase before us tonight that we find in the first there, where it says, he will rest in his love. Our God will rest in his love. Now, modern versions of the Bible, like the NIV or the New King James Version or the uh, English Standard Version, whatever, most of those modern versions, they read this here, he will quiet you with his love. Now, while it is true that the knowledge and the sense of God's love towards us, it has the effect of giving us a quietness of heart, a peace of mind, a peace of heart. That is the effect of God's love as we consider it. But that is not the meaning of this phrase as we have it here. It is not talking about men resting in God's love. Rather, it is God resting in his love. We were singing that hymn just a, a short time back in the last verse. We, we were singing the three in one and one in three in love forever rest. And that little verse is based upon this text. It is God resting in his love. Now, this word rest, it will bear a number of applications. And it carries with it the sense of being at peace, the sense of contentment, the sense of satisfaction. God has satisfaction in his love. We've had little first over there in Romans in the third chapter, the third chapter of Romans, and is speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ in the verse 25, is speaking of Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. God has set Christ forth to be a propitiation. Uh, and that word, it means to appease, or it means to give satisfaction. God has, sent, has set forth the Lord Jesus Christ to be a propitiation. And God is satisfied in the work that Christ has done. Christ making satisfaction to define justice for the sins of his people. God in his love, giving his son for this purpose, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Why did God give his only begotten son? It was that he might make satisfaction, that the justice of God would be satisfied with the work of the eternal son, satisfied on behalf of all that the son would die for all of the for all of those that would know the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus Christ in their hearts, and God is satisfied tonight, and He rests in the work of His love. He rests in the work of His beloved Son, that work of salvation. And so, when we're reading here of God resting in His love, there's a sense that He's satisfied. God is satisfied with the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one that he gave in love for sinners, that we might be redeemed. And of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, he is satisfied with that work. 
When we turn back there into Isaiah and into the chapter 53 of Isaiah, the verse 11, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is here termed the righteous servant. We read there in the verse 11, Isaiah 53, he shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. We're talking here about the toil and the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ, his travail, his labor, that sacrificial substitutionary work, the cross work, and the result of Christ's work is the saving of souls. As we read there, he justified many. Or as we have it in the second chapter of Hebrews, he brought many sons into glory. That's the fruit of his work. And he is satisfied. The Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal son, he is satisfied with that work, with the glory that it brings to God the Father and to himself and the salvation that it brings to his people. That was the work of his love. And he rests in that love. He is content with that. He is satisfied in that redeeming love. And so when we read this little text of God resting in his love, it's speaking about the satisfaction that God has, the justice of God satisfied with the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was given in love to do that work on Calvary and finish the work that he was given to do. But the word is also translated silent. And that certainly is the meaning of this word. He is silent in his love. I think it ought to be said, or can be said, that the deepest love has no words. It needs no words. It just looks and loves. What better illustration, perhaps, than a mother or a father uh, looking into the face of her child as he sleeps in her arms, and she just looks into the face of the child, and she loves. No words. Her heart needs no expression. And so the Lord, how he loves his people with a depth of love, that has no sufficient human expression. There's a wonderful verse that's found in John 15 and the first nine. And we're familiar with it, of course. And it says there, uh, uh, the Lord is speaking, he says, as the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. And who can really fathom the depth of that verse? Of what Jesus said, How much does Jesus love me? The apostle said he loved me and gave himself for me. And we look away to Calvary by the, the eye of faith and we can see the Lord Jesus Christ there bearing our sins in Calvary, the pain, the agony, the suffering that he endured. He did all of that in love. He, he loved me and he gave himself up to the sufferings of Calvary. That's how much he loved us. But how can we fathom this depth? 
How much does God the Father love his sinless son? Who can explain that? So much so does Jesus love me. So much so does Jesus love his people. The Father's love to Christ, it is eternal, it is unchangeable, it's constant, it's full, it's perfect, it's wise, it's just, it's free. And that's how our Savior loves us. He is silent in his love. No words could ever express the depth of love that God has for us. I think we could not bear it if the Lord told us uh, all of how much he loves us. I don't think we could bear it. A child never fully knows how much his mother loves him. But he, he sees her love in what she does for him. In, in her care, her advice, her provisions for him. The evidence of his love. I was brought up, I'm sure like most, with a mother and father who, who loved me, loved us all. But we weren't told every day. My mother didn't say to me, every day when I was going out to school, David, I love you. I know that often that is done. Nothing wrong with that. But that didn't happen in our house. We were sent off to school or wherever. But there was never a moment in my life that I ever doubted that my mother loved me and loved me deeply. How did I know? Not by the words that she spoke. I knew by the care she took of me. I knew uh, by the way that she advised me to do things or not to do things. I knew by her provisions for me. Dear people, the Lord is silent with regard to the depth of his love because there is no human expression that could ever bring before us the fullness of the depth of the love of God for us poor creatures, poor sinners that he loved so much and paid such a price in order to redeem us. But there's a further sense to this. God is silent in his love. God is silent in his love in this sense. He makes no mention of our past sins. He, he doesn't bring our sins up against us. He doesn't remind us continually about our sins. He doesn't upbraid us regarding our sins. Oh, there's many people, I'm sure, would remind us of sins of the past, but not the Lord. The Lord is silent about all of that mountain of filthy foulness, that sin, and it's been put under the blood, cleansed, put far away as far as the east is from the west, and we're told in the scriptures that God remembers it no more. He reminds us no more about it. Jeremiah 31 and 34, the Lord says, For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. What a God we have. Doesn't upbraid us. Similar is found in 
Hebrews 10 and 17, similar again in, in Hebrews 8 and the first 12. God is silent. Doesn't always remind us. Never reminds us. Never upbraids us about the sins of the past. It's all under the blood. All under the blood. God is silent in his love. The term uh, certainly will bear the sense of to remain, to rest, to remain, to stay. Like someone maybe discussing a matter, and they might say, well, just let the matter rest there. Don't go any further with it. Don't discuss it. We can just leave it there. Let it stay there. means to remain. And this is the steadfastness of the love of God. It is unchanging. He, he rests in a love that is steadfast. If we turn over there to Romans 8, and again, well-known verses, <clears throat> and it's speaking about the love of God for his people, that love that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And in the first 38 of Romans 8, we read, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God his love remains the same to us. Here's the steadfastness of his love. <clears throat> he is constant in his love. He remains. He rests. He remains constant in his love. Never changes. Everlasting love. Oh, what love is this? God is satisfied in that work of love that was carried out by the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, and because of that work of love, divine justice is satisfied. The eternal Son is satisfied because it is the very means, the basis of bringing uh, sons, bringing men and women, saving men, bringing them into the glory, justifying many, satisfied and my dear friend, God is silent in his love. The depth of his love is such that, he, that it cannot be explained by any human words. And he's silent because our sin is put far from us and God remembers it no more and God rests, he stays steadfast in his love for us. What is our response to the Lord with regard to that love. You turn back into the first nine of that chapter. The Lord is saying here, verse nine of Zephaniah, the third chapter, for then will I turn to the people a pure language that they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent. For then will I turn to the people a pure language. Having restored them, he's now giving to them a pure language. That word 
uh, turn that is used there for then will I turn uh, to the people. It is the same word that is translated in other places uh, by the term to give. The same word when Samuel was speaking to Saul and the Lord was uh, having Saul to go out to serve him. We read there about the Lord giving to Saul uh, a, a new heart. It's the same word that is used to here. Used here, and and so we are we're talking here about God giving a pure language, purity of language. What is it? <clears throat> well, it has to do with holiness of life, of course. Uh, God would give the pure language of the grace of God, of the gospel of His grace, and by that means of grace, the redeemed then would use the language of the gospel, the language of grace. They would use that language that is found as the language of repentance, the language of humility, the language of faith, pure language. Matthew Poole gives this to mean a pure way of worshiping God, a purity of language in prayer, in, in praise, all coming from a pure heart. That is the sense that Matthew Poole puts in this, and I have no doubt that there is that sense in it, and it certainly includes the sense of gone is the filthiness and the lying and the swearing and the cursing and the deceit. That is the common language of the world. That is no longer to be found as the language of the people of God. We're talking here about the language that is a language that is pure. There's no more boasting uh, of self, there's no lying, there's no fileness, there's no emptiness, there's no vanity. It's language that is in keeping with the gospel of Christ. That's the response. When the God of love turns our hearts, he gives to us a change of heart. He gives to us a, a new language, pure, clean, pleasing to him <clears throat> in keeping with the gospel of Christ. Then, of course, we read that verse again. For then will I turn to the people of pure language that they may all call upon the name of the Lord. And it doesn't need much by way of explanation. That phrase is talking about prayer. <clears throat> the people of God of purity of language, the people of God call upon the name of the Lord in prayer. That's the sense of it here. That's uh, the outcome, that's the outworking uh, of the Lord uh, uh, dealing with his people and the Lord showing his people the depth of his love and, uh, and the consequences love. And then, of course, we find it has to do with service. For it says here, for then will I turn to the people of pure language that they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve him, to serve him. God's people are to serve the Lord. And we're to serve the Lord who loves us. And in our mind, as we serve the Lord, of course, we keep that picture, that sense of the depth of his love that he has for us. How can we do anything other than love the Lord? How can we do anything other than call upon the Lord? How can we do anything other than serve the Lord? You notice it talks there about serving the Lord with one consent. There's a sense of unity there, <clears throat> serving the Lord with one consent. Now, that word consent 
It is the same word that is used for shoulder. To be working shoulder to shoulder with each other. That's the sense that is used here. And, and the illustration is taken from a yoke of oxen, where you have a couple of oxen and they're yoked together uh, to do the service of their, of their master. It may be in plowing or in hauling a heavy load, whatever it would be. And they're yoked together. That's to keep them together so that they're walking side by side. They're walking step by step. Uh, they're walking, as it were, in unity of purpose. They're going in the same direction. That is the sense of the picture that is painted here. God's people are expected by the Lord. The Lord would have his people to serve him and to serve him in this sense that they're working together. But the emphasis is laid in this verse here. It is to serve him in contrast to who they were serving in their times of rebellion against God, when they were serving idols. The, the, the term here is that they're to serve him. And that's where the emphasis would lie here <clears throat> to a large degree here in our text. God's people are to serve the Lord. We can't serve two masters as we have it over there in Matthew 6 and 24. And in that verse, Matthew 6 and 24, the term to serve there comes from the term which means a bondman. One who totally, wholly belongs to a master. One who is entirely under the control of, of a master. We're to serve the Lord. Take the picture, keep in our mind the picture of the yoke of oxen. They're plowing a field. They have to go in a straight line. Or they're drawing a load, hauling a load along. How do they keep going in a straight line? How do they turn where they ought to turn along that pathway, along that road? It is by the direction, by the command of the owner who is working them. They have his command. They are under his word. He directs them. They don't go according to their own mind. He directs them. They're tied together. Can you imagine what it would be if two oxen and one of them decided, well, I don't want to go in that way. I want to go that road. I want to do my own thing. I don't want to plow the field. I don't want to plow a straight furrow. I'm going to turn to the side. And if the stubborn oxen was like that, it would be a mess. Both of them have to work together, but they work together under the command of their owner, under the command of the person who is working them, who is directing them. And people, we are under the word of God <clears throat> we need to work together. But we don't work in accordance with what we think should be done or with how we think it should be done or with what others do. We are to do the work of the Lord, we're to serve the Lord together in accordance with God's word, God's command. We're under God's control. We're under the directions of the Lord <clears throat> this is the big problem. 
It's the problem of the church today. And, and just let me say this too. We can't bury our heads in the sand and say, oh, it's no problem in the Free Presbyterian Church. Let me tell you, friend, we're not immune from these problems. And it is a problem right around the province. And it's a problem in our church today. Even our own denomination, uh, denomination is not exempt from it. That is, doing God's work our way or doing it the way that others do it. We can't do that. Over in, in Second Chronicles 25, we have the man there by the name of uh, Amaziah. Amaziah, we read of him in the third verse of that chapter 25 that says, and he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. Now that sounds good. And then it says, but not with a perfect heart. He was, in, he was involved in the work of the Lord. He wanted to be, at least he wanted to be seen to have an interest in the things of God, but he didn't want to worship the way the Lord wanted him to worship. And we read later on in that chapter 25 that he wanted his idolatry. And he set up the idols, those that were the spoils of war. Yes, he had the appearance of, of doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. But it wasn't right before God. God was angry with him. Read through that chapter again. And the Lord was angry, angry with him because he turned again to doing his own will, to doing his own thing. And people, that is a great difficulty and a great problem. We need to stay to the word of God. We need to stick with the word of God. Whatever God tells us, we're to do it. But more than that, in the way that God tells us to do it, that's what we are to do. We're not to be turning to do what others do. We're not to be saying, well, I know that I'm serving the Lord and I'm involved in this work, I'm involved in that work, but I want to do it the way that someone else does it. Some other church is doing it that way and they're having great results. Or this is a way that I think it ought to be. This is my opinion and my opinion's as good as anybody's opinion. That is what, that is often the impression that people give. People, we're to serve the Lord shoulder to shoulder, but we're to make sure that we're doing it in accordance with the Word of God. Not in the way that others do it, not in the way we think it needs to be done, doing it in accordance with the way that the Lord would have us to do it. The useful team of oxen, they obey the directions of the one that they serve. And in our case, we are serving our God, the Almighty Lord and the King of the Church, who rests in his love for us. How can we do anything other when we think of the depth of the love that God has for us? How can we do anything other than obey the Lord and serve the Lord and love the Lord and seek the face of the Lord, cry unto him in prayer, how can we do anything other than that, people? Even 
uh, with the week of meetings here in the church. And of course, the, the ministers of the church have been emphasizing it. But even with that in mind, let us all do what we can to further the work of the Lord and the word of God. And let us seek his face for the work. And let us all live according to the purity of the gospel so that our lives tally with the words that we speak. The Lord rests in his love for us. He's satisfied with the work of his dear son. Are you satisfied? Are we satisfied? Oh, I trust we are tonight. Then let us go forth in the satisfaction of that love, praising him for it and living in the light of the infinite love of God for us poor sinners who are worthy in ourselves only of hell itself. May the Lord be pleased to write his word upon our hearts uh, tonight.